monsters and ghosts to otherworldly beings. Join the explorers as they venture into the darkest realm seeking the truth to what goes bump in the night. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to Explorer Seekers of the Truth. I am Lesson Cavage, and hopefully joining me this evening, as always, is my co-host and best friend, Chad Charlesworth. Um, unfortunately, we are experiencing, <laughs> yet again, story of our lives, um, technical issues. Um, I'm hoping Chad could get in. Um if he doesn't, we're going to just reschedule the show next week. So um, he posted a note here. Yeah, feel free to share. Okay. Hey, Gary, thanks for joining in, buddy. I'm hoping tonight's show uh, takes takes off. But while I'm waiting for Mr. Charlesworth to uh, join in, I guess I'll give a little bit of a breakdown of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, tonight's conversation is going to be of the Jotlov Pass incident. Um, it took place in 1959 in Russia um, with a group of young adventurers that, that sought off on an adventure of their own and only to have it end in peril. So hopefully... <laughs> Hey, Moon Joey, thanks for joining in, buddy. Um, hopefully, uh, we get Chad in here and we could get him um, going on to the show with us. Hey, John, thanks for joining into the show. Boy, okay, I think Chad is here. Hold on, let me get him on, everybody. There he is. <laughs> Welcome to Technical Difficulty Live Central. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, you know, it's never it's never a dull moment, at least. Yeah, I mean, it's always a panic scramble trying to get the show on air. <laughs> well, you're having technical issues. I just barely made it back in time. I made it with like six minutes to spare to get the show up and running because I was at a uh, <clears throat> a birthday party for my daughter's friend and... You know how it goes. So I briefed everybody about what we're talking about with the Jotlov Pass incident. So and I, I said about how it was uh, nine young adventurers that sought off on an adventure in 1959 Russia into the, uh, oh, God, how do, you, how do you pronounce the mountains? The. Yeah, you're the <laughs> one that's got all this right. <laughs> the Ural Mountains, isn't it? The, like. Yeah, it's the Ural Mountains. <laughs> yeah, in Russia. Yeah, so Ural, U R A L Ural <laughs> Ural Mountains. Yeah, also known as the Mountain of Death, uh, to uh, an indigenous group of people that lived there, and we're going to be talking about them a little bit later on in the show. So, I guess tonight's show is, I guess you could say it's more or less a conspiracy theory. Would you agree with me on that? Oh. Well, I think it, it's not necessarily a conspiracy theory, um, but it is a conspiracy theory. Yeah, I, it's, I think it's kind I think of along the lines of, yeah, it's like all the rational explanations lead to conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no one cut and dry answer to all of it. So, right. therefore, yes, it has become a conspiracy in the. 
Well, I guess, I guess it, in our modern minds, it's become a conspiracy. Right. Because it, 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 we're going to get into it, folks. Believe me, we're going to get there. Um, the story or, or the incident was case closed by the Russian authorities <clears throat> as an avalanche. But there are at least 15 to 16 conflicting theories, which kind of make it a conspiracy theory that people uh, theorize was the real reason behind it. Like, like there was no true, true, true. Uh, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for? True determination. Part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the actual determination is unknown compelling force. Mm-hmm. is the actual Russian um, documented cause, most likely due to environmental. Yeah, like they, I know they were, they were seeing a lot of avalanche because when they found a lot of the people, they were buried under a few feet of snow, and there was a lot of signs indicating that it was an avalanche. So let, let's, let's first start talking about... Um, that was just biting my leg. Um, I'll have you give everybody the uh, the gist of the story of, of what okay. happened that 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 uh, th- during that time. Okay, so in 1959, a group of you know a group of kids formed a ski expedition. Now, when I say kids, they were in their 20s. One member actually being in in his late 30s, mm-hmm. but you know their their plan was to head to the Northern Urals and do this basically back then it was called ski tourism and Igor Jatlov was 23 at the time. He was a radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnic Institute uh, was the leader of the group who you know, assembled the group and brought along nine others. Mm-hmm. Nine others actually was 10 others. One of them dropped out before they left. Mm-hmm who is never mentioned by name as being part of the expedition, which would be very interesting to find out who he was. Right. Uh, you know, most of this, they were mostly students and peers at the university and it was eight men, two women, but they were also in Russia at the time in Russia, you still have what they call master of sport. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see it in pretty much every, um, sportive activity that they have you reach a level as master of sport and they were actually one step below this trip would have actually put them over their required um requirements for this you know master of sport which was considered a grade three certification Mm -hmm. in russia at the time so they were all grade two just so people are yeah they were all yeah, yeah they were all one step this they were one step below expert with them actually have logged more distance and time than they actually need it. This was kind of a uh, ceremonial trip for mm-hmm. them to kind of have that moment of completion where they actually were awarded their level three or grade three master of sport in this. Mm-hmm. And right. to actually acquire that, you had to traverse over 3,000 kilometers or wow. 190 miles for our English 
American speaking friends. <laughs> yeah. So what, what was the goal of this? Like I, they were all students. They were all, um, you know, academics. They were all very well experienced. What, what was the goal for them to do this? Um, besides getting their level three certification, their actual goal on the trip was to reach the uh, peak of one of the mountains there, mm -hmm. uh, which is about 10 kilometers or 6.2 miles north of the, the, um, incident site where they were mm -hmm. found or where the tent was found. Uh, so they really weren't and, that and far from their destination. No, they, they were in a good place. Of course, you know. Somebody's calling me from Turkey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can you guys see this? I'm getting a phone call on my other phone from Turkey. Now, you I would popular, you're a popular man. I, tell you I would just like to be international from now on. <laughs> international man of mystery. Yeah. And yeah, they, I mean, they weren't far from their destination. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically the route they had chose in the month of February was estimated to be a category three for its difficulty. Mm -hmm. So basically they were they were using this trip, which should have been about I think they were estimating about 12 days, uh -huh. six days up, six days back, you know, and it wasn't an easy like, oh, you know, drive down the road here's the mountain, start climbing the mountain. Right. They basically had to take a train, a horse-drawn carrot, like horse-drawn wagons, and ski distances to actually arrive at their starting point for their journey. So these people, I mean, already are, are pretty tough, you know, experienced hikers or ski hikers, whatever you want to consider from back then. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I'm going to let Lesh jump on this timeline of events if he'd like, because I know you do the Russian pronunciations a lot better than I do. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. So I get to butcher them is what you're saying. Okay. So to give everybody, like Chad said, a, a timeline on the event, the 25th of January, 1959, the group arrived by train at Ivedil, I've done a city at the center of the northern province of Sverdlovsk. Jesus Christ, thanks a lot. Sverdlovsk Oblast in in the early morning hours. They then took a truck to Val, uh, a lorry village that is the last inhabited settlement to the north. While spending the night in Val, in Vi, I guess it is. That's sorry, the print is extremely small on my computer. I apologize. Uh, let me try and pump it up here. Okay, there we go. The skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day's hike. On the 27th of January, they began their trek toward Orton from Vi. Vizai. So, whew, that's, a, that's a tough one. Then, on... Uh, <laughs> can you spell those towns? I'm taking notes. Yeah, they, right, right on top of that, Joey. Uh uh, let's see. So on the 28th of January, one of the members, Yuri Yudin, who suffered from several health ailments, including uh, uh, rheumatism and congenital heart defect, was forced to turn back due to a knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. 
On the 31st of January, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they cached surplus food and equipment that would be used for their trip back. On February 1st, the hikers started to move through the pass. It seems they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. But because of worsening weather conditions, snowstorms, and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west towards up towards the top of the Kalat Siakal. <laughs> I hope that's right. When they realized their mistake, the group decided to stop and set up camp here on the slope of the mountain rather than moving one and a half kilometers or 0.93 mile uh, downhill to a forested area, which would have offered uh, some shelter from the elements. The elements. Yuri Yudin um, postulated that uh, Jotlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained. Um, hey, Kelly. Um, uh, so, so he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. So before leaving, uh, Jotlov had agreed he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizay. It was expected that this would happen no later uh, than February 12th. Uh, February 12th. Uh, wait, I lost place here, so I apologize. Okay. But Jotlov had told Yudin before his departure from the group that he expected to be longer. When the 12th passed and no messages had, had been received, there was no immediate reaction as delays of a few days were common with such expeditions. It was not until the relatives of the travelers demanded a rescue operation on February 20th that the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the army and uh, military forces became involved with planes, helicopters, and whatnot, and they began uh, ordering to join the rescue operation. On okay. February, can 20- we take can, can we take a little sidebar there? Sure. Um, you know, when we're going back to that point of discussing, you know, when they deviated off course and headed a little further up the mountain than they had planned at that point, mm-hmm. and decided to stay there. One of the things like the the woods weren't that far away, if you think right. about it. I mean, nine tenths of a mile, basically. Yeah. So, you know, elevation at that point, you know, it is it is something when you're climbing that high to mm-hmm. you know contend with. I don't know if it was really a can-do spirit. Of basically, well, we're here, we can do this, you know, we're all, you know, qualified, we're all skilled in this, let's just stop here, set up the tent. Right. You know, yes, it was, you know, five degrees out with wind chills of negative 30 or 30 below. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they stop at that point. Yes, the, the woods would have offered a little more shelter, but I don't know if... In the grand scheme of things, I don't know if the woods would have changed the events. Mm-hmm. So I, I just I always find that interesting. Like they, you know, they have somebody who knew them who who was on the beginning of this expedition and lives, and he theorizes at a certain point, like, 
oh, they probably would have just stayed where they were at instead of, you know, dropping down, you know, I don't know what the change in elevation was over that nine-tenths of a mile. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, I know the slope where they camped was at about 22 degrees. Avalanches uh, or the risk for a- avalanches increase at anything over 15 degrees. Right. Of, you know, incline. So I know, you know, they were at 22 degrees. The woods... Yeah, it would have been maybe a little bit lower, but not necessarily anything that great of a difference. Right, right. I mean, I, I still think whatever happened uh, would still have happened. You know, mm. I don't think they're they're they would have been out of harm's way because the 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 distance relative to where they were was was in, insignificant to say yeah. the least. You do have to though take in that the elevation. I mean, it is a it is a short distance, but you know, nine tenths of a mile straight up a mountain could could be a difference in you know your oxygen and, and your your blood oxygen levels and stuff like that could vary greatly. Well, yeah, because I mean, within that, you could you could uh, decrease elevation. Enough to to uh, I guess maybe increase your chances. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, I mean I'm not anywhere near qualified in mountain climbing. Trust me. <laughs> That's one of your uh, many things on your resume is mountaineer now. Yeah, spelunking. <laughs> I did a lot of spelunking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you want me to go back onto the timeline? Um, I mean. You know, we I think, can talk I think about... it's good to to, to just kind of go through this just to build up the uh, the the whole story, really. And then there's some other things that I want to start talking about too, with the conflicting theories that I think is is important. And I have an illustration that I want to bring up that we could talk about as well, which um, yeah. the uh, the rule of nine, which I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. or the theory of nine. So, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, where I left off on February 26th. Now, this is after the military had gotten involved. On February 26th, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on Kalat Siakal. <laughs> I don't know. The campsite baffed, uh, the ser- baffled the search party. Mikhail Sharavan, the student who found the tent, said the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty. I'm trying to find a picture of that two folks to bring up for you. Um, All the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from the inside out. So that's that's an interesting thing to, to remember. Eight or nine sets of footprints left by people who were wearing only socks, a single shoe, or were even barefoot could be followed leading down toward the edge of the nearby woods. On the opposite side of the pass, 1.5 kilometers or 0.93 mile uh, to the northeast, however, after 500 meters or 1,600 feet, these tracks were covered with snow. At At the forest edge under a large pine, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire along with the first two bodies, those of, oh God, I'm gonna butcher these names. Krivonishenko and Doroshenko, shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. The branches on the tree were broken up to five meters high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up 
to look for something, perhaps the camp. Between the pine and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses, Jotlov, Kalmergrova, and Slobodin, who seemed to have died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. They were found separately at a distance of 300, 480, and 630 meters from the tree. Searching for the remaining four travelers took more than two months. They were finally found on May 4th under four meters of snow in a ravine 75 meters further into the woods from the pine tree. That, that again, is what kind of uh, sparks my, my uh, agreement with this being uh, avalanche, but I have another kind of theory to go along with that. So we'll, uh, we'll touch base on that later. Um, these four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that those who had died first had apparently relinquished their clothes to the others. Uh, so basically, the people who were alive took the clothes off the dead to try and stay alive a little bit longer. Um, Zolotoryov was wearing Dubinana's faux fur coat and hat, while Dubiana's foot was wrapped in a piece of Kravineshko's wool trousers. trousers. So... It's, it's interesting because as we go on with this, um, the bodies, when they were found, the bodies had sustained severe injuries, severe trauma, broken bones, internal bleeding, just the, the list goes on and on. So it just makes me wonder how they survived so long after such an intense attack or accident or whatever you want to call it. So it's, it's, it's. It's pretty crazy. What do you think, Chad? Well, I don't buy the whole avalanche theory, mm -hmm. personally. Um, the fact, the way the bodies are found, and certain things, you know, the way people, as we're going to talk, the way certain people seem to have paired up, is quite interesting okay. to where they're found in a sense. So I don't, I don't buy any one of the explanations in and well, of itself. Right. I think my theory is a combination. Well, do you want to do that? Or do you want me to talk about the Ural mountains a little bit? Go on to the mountains. Okay. Because I, I still so, think we, we need to talk about the train. We need to let everybody know what what is around, and then we're going to get. So okay. you talk about the mountains. So the Ural Mountains are the oldest extent of mountain range in the world. They formed about two hundred and fifty to three hundred million years ago, and you know it's basically when two continents collided. They sprung up. It took about 90 million years for the mountains to form into the shape that they are currently. Uh, the mountains actually have peaks of about 6,000 feet, about 1,895 uh, meters for our metric using friends. <laughs> you know, but the Urals are very strange similar to the Blue Ridge Mountains in Australia, um, pretty much we could, you know, the Sierra, uh, Sierra Nevada Mountains and stuff like that. 
there's a lot of strange things that go on that go on around the mountains in, in conjunction with folklore of the mountains. You know, there's actually a large uh, glyph in the Ural Mountains. In the for- It's like a moose or an elk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's believed to be between 4,000 and 6,000 years old. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of those kind of megalith kind of things out there. Mm-hmm. There's actually um, stone megaliths out there also uh, on one of the islands in, in the mountain, in the lake Targ- Targayak. <laughs> uh, there's Vera Island and there's uh-huh. a monolithic structure there that um, has been dated to the Copper Age, the earliest part of the Bronze Age, about 5000 BCE. Mm-hmm. You know, and within 15 miles or so of there in the last, you know, 20 years have been a flood of UFO sightings, Bigfoot sightings, ghost manifestations, plasma balls, time slips, and other weird things happening to like electronic devices and stuff like that. Yeah. So you definitely have high strangeness in this area. Now... Is it, you know, tourism-based to try to get people to come that way, to come out to those mountains? I don't think so, because a lot of the stuff dates back to the Soviet Union as being, you know, known history of mm-hmm. the area or, or known occurrences in the area. Um, there's actually a, an anomaly in this one town that, basically interferes with all electric electronic devices mm-hmm. um, all kinds of audio devices radio signals cell phones everything except for in one six foot by six foot area for some reason is unaffected in this town everything mm-hmm. else around it is You'll the phone will drop. They have plasma balls. They have sudden fire outbreaks. Uh, tons of electronic interference with like um, radio signal. <clears throat> Even not just like um, FM AM radio, but like ham radio, shortwave and stuff like that. Right. They right. have a lot of you know just interference. A lot of you can't send or receive at times. They have a course. They have a slew of UFO and Bigfoot sightings also in this area. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, the cell phone service is next to non-existent except for in this six by six box. Hmm. And they also have a lot of strange lights at night. Um, basically these phantom, you know, ghost lights and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And there's even a rumor that there's a hidden treasure, you know, buried somewhere in the mountains, um, in this area that dates back from like the 1940s and it was supposedly like 44 copper and bronze items as well as, you know, stuff like that. But they've actually found items in this area that date back to about 200 to 400 BCE. Hmm. And most likely from the Mansi people who are the natives there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you that we, we've been uh, kind of 
chomping at the bit to go looking for pirate treasure and stuff like down in South Carolina after Blackbeard's pirate treasure and all that stuff. But I, I don't want to go looking for this one. Really? No. I no. mean, come on. You have to go to the Soviet Union. Yeah, that's 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 the first <laughs> reason why I wouldn't want to go. Second reason is, well, y- yes and no. I, I, I guess I, I'm kind of torn because in Siberia and other uh, very remote areas of Russia and whatnot, you have the Almastay, their Bigfoot. You know, you they have that hole that was mined uh, that is ridiculously deep, and they they said they have recordings of of screaming voices and whatnot. So basically, they 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 say that they've dug a hole down to hell and it's the sounds of the, the tormented souls in hell. So that's creepy. You have uh, a lot of uh, that area is uh, because it's near the poles. It's uh, bombarded by meteorites and, and mm-hmm. what other kind of, you know, foreign debris from space that comes crashing down. You have, like you said, the UFO sightings are, are rampant up there. It's just a very, strange place so for that reason i would love to go and look for the strange things but i just don't know if i would feel safe with the people up there i don't know oh no I don't you, know. You, you would never actually be safe there uh-uh. uh, it's a very different culture yeah, yeah yeah but yeah i mean there is just like what i've read about the urals itself Mm-hmm. Like just to see some of this stuff firsthand would be super interesting. Right. You right. know, Absolutely. if they have legit, you know, if this town is having all this interference and ghost manifestations and plasma balls and UFOs and Bigfoot, I think that's kind of like the Mecca of things that we're interested in. Sorry, I, I don't know what happened there. Just everything. Can you hear me? Are we still live? Can you hear me, Chad? Can you hear me? Okay, I seem to have lost less. Oh, crap. Can somebody please type into the show if they could hear me? All right, Kelly says she can hear me. I'm gonna have Chad log out. Can 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 uh can anybody see or hear Chad? Kelly, can you tell me? Can you see or hear Chad? All right, Joey hears both of us, but Chad is gone now. I have to have him come back into the lobby. I apologize, everybody. It's one of those nights, and it's so it's it's so weird every time we talk about. Uh, we have show topics on UFOs, extraterrestrials, and, and just the, the out of the norm. Uh, weird shit like this happens on the show all the time. And, and I swear to you, I didn't do it on purpose. So I'm going to wait for Chad to log back in and hopefully we could get back onto the topic here. It's always when it starts getting a little, a little interesting, stuff goes awry. So I'm going to have him log back in quick. I'm going to message him. Yeah. 
back in because there's a lot more to this topic that we want to talk with you guys about. Oh, and I think he is coming in now. And there he is. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. I don't know what happened. I Dude, just... I we I was right in the middle of, of listening. You had that conversation and my whole screen blanked out and then it just popped back up and I wasn't in. So I had to put myself back into the broadcast and then we weren't hearing each other. We weren't synced and I don't know what happened. So again, everybody, apologies. Uh, uh, can somebody please just write in the comments that they could hear both of us? That you all can hear both I don't know. of us? My live. I see you here, Chad. Like Joey, a, do you hear both of us and see both of us? Like okay. on my screen, the little live thing is just flickering. Mm, I don't know. Yeah, so I, I don't know if everybody can hear or not. Both of you are good, but Joey I, says. All right, we're, we're good to go. All right, so okay. I'm sorry. Go start. Where, where did you leave off? I, I, I know we were talking about the uh, all the strange stuff that is going on up there, and I. Uh... Okay, so yeah, all the strange stuff like the plasma balls, the ghosts, the Bigfoot, UFO, you know, things that are happening around this small town in the Urals. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of like the mecca of everything we're interested in. So, like going there would be interesting to me just to to see it like to debunk it if it is just paratourism buildup or to actually go and you know experience some of this stuff and be like you know these guys aren't telling stories there is something definitely happening here right right ay 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 so let's talk about the uh, bodies of the nine victims. So let's move, move into that. And bef before I bring anything on screen, I just want to let everybody out there watching and listening know that the uh, images are very graphic. It, they are images of the deceased at, at different states of decomposition. So if you're squeamish, you might not want to watch. Yeah, be careful. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know the chat's going all over. Where are you going? <laughs> I had to get my phone charger. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is live. <laughs> live in Casa de la Charlesworth. So, yeah. All right. So we're going to talk first um, about... Who's the first one on the list? Igor. Igor Jotlov. So according to... These are just some tidbits and some write-ups of the uh, autopsy reports that were done on the deceased. So Igor Jotlov, the head of Igor Jotlov was bare. He had unbuttoned, he had an unbuttoned fur coat with pockets, a sweater, long sleeve shirt, ski pants over his pants. Footwear was absent. He had only one pair of socks, woolen on the right, cotton on the left. And it's hard to explain this uneven distribution. It could be that he had two socks on one foot and later took it off to protect the other barefoot. Uh, it might have been someone else's sock who simply gave it away to protect a friend from certain death. He had a pocket knife and a photo of Zena Kalmagrova, which was another one of the people in, in the uh, party. Uh, the clock on, on hand, or the, I guess the, his watch showed 531. He had minor abrasions on the forehead, 
abrasions above the left eyebrow of brown and red color, dried blood on his lips. His lower jaw had a missing incisor and the, the mucosa was intact. That suggests the tooth was lost before the final trip. Um, on the lower third of the right forearm and the palm surface had many scratches of dark red coloration. Uh, the, the metatarsophalangeal joints on the right hand had brown red bruises. This is a common injury in the hands uh, in like hand to hand fighting. And to get a better idea of the, the injuries, just to make a fist, this is the part of the hand which you use to hit somebody. So I like the flat part of the hand. Um, brownish purple bruises on the left hand, also superficial wounds on the second and fifth finger. Bruised knees without bleeding into the underlying tissue. On the lower third of the right leg, there was bruising. Uh, both angles, ankles had abrasions, uh, bright red, and uh, sizes about one and a half to three to two and a half centimeters, and it hemorrhaged into the underlying tissues. There were no internal in injuries, and the amount of urine in the bladder was about one liter. The cause of death was hypothermia. Later, Yuri Yudin was, will testify that the long sleeve shirt found in the body of Igor Jotlov was his, but he gave it to uh, Doroshenko. Then he was, de uh, when he was departing, it would be logical to assume that Jotlov got it from a frozen body of the Doroshenko after he had died. And I think I have a picture of Jotlov. I just want to make sure that it is the right one. If this is in fact him. Uh, let me see if I can find it. I think if I could bring it up, I think this is him. I apologize. I should have had this uh, ready earlier, but Jesus, life is a bitch. That's one of them when they were found in the snow. And, and like I said, a lot of the bodies were, were covered in snow and just parts were exposed that uh, aided the uh, searchers in finding them. Like they said, or like we read earlier, they were... Uh, following tracks in the snow when the tracks ended you know that's where they were able to find the remains of the, the part the nine the nine the party of nine so that's one of them like i said they're uh, kind of not not pretty um and then we go to oh god ludmilia Dubenina, I guess is how you pronounce it. I don't know. She, uh, that person, I don't know if it's a boy or a girl. <laughs> Lud Ludmilla? Yeah. Is a woman. Okay. She wore a shirt, a short sleeve shirt, long sleeve shirt over top of that with two, two sweaters. The body was uh, covered by underwear, long socks, two pairs of pants, and the external pair was badly damaged by fire and subsequently ripped. She also wore a small hat and two pairs of warm socks. A third sock was not paired. Ludmilia, apparently in the last attempt to preserve her feet, took off her sweater and cut it into two pieces. One half she wrapped around her foot. Another half she left or dropped unintentionally in the snow. Her tongue was missing. 
and soft tissues are missing around the eyes and the eyebrows and the left temporal area. Bone was partially exposed. Um, and I think I have her picture here. I believe this was her. Um, the eyes were missing. Nostril cartilages are broken and flattened. Uh, ribs two, three, four, and five are broken in the right side. Two fractured lines are visible. Two, three, four, five, six, and seven ribs are broken on the left side. Two fractured lines are visible. Soft tissue of the upper lip are missing. Teeth and upper jaw were exposed. Um, massive hemorrhaging in the heart's right um, atrium. Bruise in the middle of left thigh. Damaged tissue around left temporal bone. And... Uh, yeah, so she was in pretty rough shape. God, that's just just looking at some of these pictures is like it just what the hell happened? I guess that's the big question. Uh, and Zenadia, Zenada, Zenada—I don't know how you pronounce it—was better dressed. Uh, was better dressed than bodies underneath the cedar because there were there were three bodies found underneath the cedar tree like we said and there were some found uh scattered as they were trying to run further and then there were more that were in the ravine trying to get get up over the pass um so they were in individual things and you said you have a theory about that chad so um she had two hats, long sleeve shirt, sweater, another shirt, and a sweater with torn cuffs. It was unclear whether she cut them off or they were torn by another person. She also had trousers, cotton athletic pants, ski pants with three small holes on the bottom. She also had three pairs of socks, no footwear, and a military mask. Swelling of the meninges, um, important feature of hypothermia. Frostbite on the phalanges of fingers. Um, numerous bruises on hands and palms, a long bruise that encircled her on the right side. And the amount of urine in the bladder is 300 grams. Her cause of death was proclaimed as hypothermia due to violent accident. Further studies prove that she was not sexually active at the time of her death. However, we need to mention that while in the official reports, no damage to the head region, radiograms seem to differ with the assessment. Uh, head of the search party, Melsen Melsenikov, sent a message to a superior commander or comrade, Solman, that stated that Kal Magrova did, in fact, suffer a traumatic injury to the head. Um, sheet 146 uh, received by Temet Temenikov, Tenminkov, I don't know what that is, who that is, uh, to Solomon immediately. Uh, soon after we... Soon after we descended, we discovered four corpses of Jotlov, Zolotar. God, I apologize. I am just butchering these names. It's horrible. Jotlov, Zolotarev, uh, Kravanashenko, and Kolmogorov. <laughs> the victims were thrown out of the tent by a hurricane. Some without boots or pants. The hurricane blew in the northeast direction so they were all in the same line from the tent the farthest body was found about two kilometers from the tents in the mouth of the creek which flows into the Lozvi river we found remains of a fire with several charred logs 
nearest to the tent. Call Magrava has a broken head. Examination will continue tomorrow. We will set up camp in the Valley of the River. Ospi, um, Ospi, I don't know how you pronounce it. So we won't uh, disturb the traces of evidence. We tried to conduct Axelrod, but they didn't respond. I think they should contact us. And that was from that Melsinikov, one of the, I guess, military rescue people. And protocol, the inspection of the scene face is covered in blood. So, um, and there was waste abrasions with visible blood. So, I, whatever happened, I'm telling you, whatever happened to these people, it was freaking crazy. Um, Yervi Doroshenko is one of the two tourists that were found under the cedar tree at the Jotlov Pass, along with Semen Volotarev. Uh, he was one of the strongest and tallest members of the group at a height of 180 centimeters. In fact, his corpse was initially identified as Zolotarev. Doroshenko was wearing a vest and a shirt and a short sleeve shirt, knit pants and short pants over that. His pants were badly ripped with one large hole on the right side, a smaller one on the left. On his feet, a pair of wool socks were found. Pants had tears inside of the thighs. Additionally, uh, the left foot had burnt socks. Uh, no footwear noted. Hair are burned on the right side of the head. Ear, nose, and lips are covered by blood. Right armpit has bruises. Dark red abrasions on the left inner shoulder measuring three and a half to one and a half centimeters. Um, inner surface of the right shoulder has two abrasions with no bleeding into the tissues. Two cuts on the knees. In the, the upper third of the right forearm, brown-red bruises. Uh, bruises on the fingers, bruises on the skin, signs of frostbite on the face and ears. On the right cheek, foamy gray fluid discharged from the mouth. Um, the foamy gray fluid that was found on the right cheek of the deceased gave some doctors a reason to think that before death, someone or something was pressing on the chest cavity. Discharges are quite common during forced interrogation by the NKVD, Stalin Secret Police, and Special Forces. This could also be a reason of a nasty fall from a tree. Nevertheless, this aspect was ignored in the final papers, cause of death, hypothermia. So, let's see, where we go? So that... Uh, What's the next one here? I'm, I'm missing the name on the notes. Um, which was the last one you read? That was that Yuri Doroshenko and uh, Semen Volotorev. Oh, this uh, is Sel Selman, isn't it? Or is it Doroshenko's? Doroshenko. I, th I did um, Zolotarov last. Okay. Well, there was another body that was found underneath a cedar tree, and it was dressed in a shirt, long sleeve shirt, swimming pants, pants and torn socks on the left leg, no footwear, bruises on the forehead, bruises on the temporal bones, diffuse bleeding in the right temporal and you know temporal region due to damage to the temporal muscle, tip of the nose is missing, frostbitten ears, bruises on the right side of the chest, bruises on the hands. 
uh, detachment of the epidermis on the back and the le- and his left hand at width of two centimeters. Portion of the epidermis from the right hand is found in the mouth of the deceased. Um, bruises on the thighs with minor scratches. Bruises on the left buttock. Abrasions on the outer side of the left arm. It's just severe trauma. And it's funny because they were saying about they got caught up in a hurricane. I mean, it's that's a possibility. I mean, it, a hurricane could destroy, I mean, buildings. I mean, it could easily tear apart a body and do said damage. Um, let's see. What else? Cause of death. Again, ro- the cause of death was ruled hypothermia. He had froze to death. The presence of skin between his teeth that was torn from his hand might suggest that, oh, Kravashenko, that's who it was. Kravashenko, that's where. Kravashenko had tried to stay on the cedar as long as he could. Some theories speculate it was a result of his dedication to cut as many tree branches as he could. Others claim something on the ground kept him on a, in the tree. The first two bodies of Durashenko and Kravashenko Kravineshchenko that were found on the Jotlov Pass incident showed an extended pattern of death. They froze to death. Their clothes were removed by their friends. It might sound bad, but this is the uh, reality of Siberia. If you can't keep yourself warm, you will die quickly. One of the most common myths that surround these deaths is a theory of so-called paradoxical undressing. This theory ignores the fact that the bodies were undressed after they died, and it was done by other members with the help of a knife in some cases. Different articles of clothing were simply cut from the dead or taken off and used by the other members of the group. These tourists clearly showed log- logical will to live. There was no state of panic and there was no illogical actions. Bodies were carefully and respectfully laid side by side and their possessions were divided amongst the survivors. Rustman Slob- Slobodin wore a black sweater long sleeve shirt, black and red square, with a passport, another shirt underneath, two pairs of pants, four pairs of socks, two insoles from boots. It was a common way to dry insoles using body heat. Unlike previous bodies, he wore one Belenki on his right leg, which was kind of like a native boot, like a mukluk uh, made of fur. Um, his watches stopped at 8.45 a.m., his pockets had 310 rubles and a passport. Additionally, researchers discovered a knife, pen, pencil, comb, and a box of matches with a single sock. Um, cadaverous blue-red spots are abundantly located on the back of the neck, trunk, and limbs. And again, minor brownish-red abrasions on the forehead, scratches, uh, traces of blood discharged from the nose, swollen lips, swelling and a lot of small abrasions of irregular shape on the right half of the face, epidermis torn on the right forearm, just bruises everywhere, all over the arms, the legs. Um, the autopsy discovered a fracture on the frontal bone and hemorrhage, hemorrhages in the shaded areas in the temporal muscles on the skull of uh, Rostum Slobodin. Uh, they suggest that this could be done with some foreign blunt object. Medical autopsy further states that Slobodin probably suffered loss of coordination due to the initial shock right after the blow that could speed up his death from hypothermia. However, the conclusion is 
uh, paradactably careful. Death of Rustam Slobodin was judged as a result of hypothermia. All bruises and scratches were blamed on last minutes of death, of death agony. Um, although it's still somewhat unclear, how did he manage to harm his exterior hands and legs when the person falls, even in an irregular state? It is usually the palms that suffer most, as well as medical aspects uh, of medial aspects of the legs. Injury to the head are less common, especially bilateral ones. Rustam Sobladen died on his back, yet there is no damage on the back of his head, just the sides. His injury pattern is different from the pattern we usually see in injuries suffered by a freezing man in the last moments of his or her uh, death. It looks like uh, Rostam fell repeatedly on his face without even trying to slow the fall with his hands, and he was walking down the mountain. Every time he fell, he managed to hit different sides of his head. It is unusual to see a man who was probably in a better physical shape than anyone else in the group. Um, even long ski trips could hardly be responsible for uh, this alleged clumsiness. Uh, let's see. No alcohol was found in the blood of any of them. The remaining four body, bodies were inspected on May 9th in 1959 below the uh, Jotlov path, Pass. Their bodies were found several months after their, their deaths by a Mansi native, uh, Kurikov, with his dog. And um, I think I have a picture. Well, I'll bring it up when we get to, to that part. The body of Alice, Alexander Kalavadov was well insulated, but he was missing a hat and shoes. His upper torso was protected by a sleeveless shirt, long sleeve shirt, sweater, fleece sweater, and ski jacket with a zipper and buttons. Ski jacket was damaged. A big hole on the left sleeve had burnt edges. Um, right sleeve was also damaged. Several tears in the clothing were found. The jacket was unbuttoned and unzipped. A strange finding for a person who was uh, supposedly dying from cold and hypothermia. During autopsy, following objects were retrieved from his pockets. A key, a safety pin, some blank paper, probably to keep a record of his thoughts or events, and two packages of pills, uh, soda and codeine. Mm. Uh, lower, yeah. <laughs> The lower part of the body uh, had shorts, light pants, ski pants, and another pair of canvas pants. From the right pocket, doctors retrieved a box of matches that was soaking wet. His feet was mentioned to have no shoes, but they were protected by home-knitted woolen socks with signs of fire damage. His right foot was also protected by a light sock underneath a woolen one. His left foot had similar three socks. Additionally, a bandage was discovered on the left ankle. It was probably put before the uh, Jotlov Pass incident since the group left their first aid kit in the tent. Lack of soft tissue around the eye. Eyebrows are missing. Skull was exposed. Broken nose, open wound behind the ear. Uh, deformed neck. Diffused bleeding in the underlying tissue of the left knee. Softened and whitened skin of the fingers and feet. Signs consistent with uh, exposure to wetness by uh, live skin. Overall skin cover had gray-green color with a tinge of purple. This autopsy had similar strange silence about the injuries of the victim. Broken nose, open wound behind the ears, deformed might uh, be the result of a fight and, and be the cause of the death. On the other hand, it could have been caused by natural elements since the body was exposed to nature for three whole months. Yet the doctors ignored this matter 
and it doesn't try to explain the reason for these strange injuries. We should probably add that snap neck and blow behind the ear is a common sign of killing performed by special forces. Just a side note. And however, we can't be sure about this since the autopsy report didn't specify any more details about the body. We're left guessing on the nature of the origin of these injuries. Uh, let's see. Nikolay Thurbo Brognol was well protected against the coldness of Siberian weather. It was suggested that him and Zolt Zolotarev might have been outside of the tent at the time. Mysterious threat struck then. Uh, this explains why both tourists wore shoes and were covered by several layers of clothes. Both, both men were much better prepared than the rest of the group when they were forced to abandon their tent. Nikolay wore a canvas fur hat and home-knitted woolen hat. Upper body was, was protected from the cold by a shirt, wool sweater, worn inside out, and fur jacket on a sheepskin. Woolen gloves were found in the right pocket, along with three coins, a comb, and several pieces of paper. Lower part of the body was protected by underwear, sweatpants, cotton pants, and ski pants. On his feet, he wore hand-knitted woolen socks and a pair of Valenki. Uh, the Russian winter shoes protected their... Uh, protect for Serbian, Serbian coldness. Additionally, Nikolay Thurabal Bronganol wore two watches on his left arm. One stopped at 814 and the other at 839. Um, cadaveric spots were discovered on the back of the upper body, neck, and upper extremities. Face hair length up to one centimeter. So multiple fractures on the temporal bone with extensions from the frontal and, and sphenoid bones. Um, the close-up of the fracture to the skull is shown. Well, I, I don't have that picture. Bruise in the upper lip and the, and the left side. Hemorrhage in the lower arm, uh, forearm. And then Vaj, the person who took the autopsy, <laughs> excluded accidental fall on the rock as a possible cause for such a massive and unusual fracture. Some theorize that the shape might be due to pressure applied during alleged avalanche and hit unsuspected tourists while they slept in the tent. If Nikolay slept on a, on a camera, this sudden increase in pressure could leave a mark on his head. However, the shape of the lens is round, and the damage would have been more round-shaped. Another reason why some specialists refuse this theory is a massive hemorrhage that would make Thurabal Brignall unable to move on his own <clears throat> and leave the side of the tent. There was no sign of dragging on the snow. No footprints suggested that someone in the group moved on their own two feet. So it just goes on and on basically saying about how uh, these injuries, he wouldn't have been able to move on his own. And the body of Se Semen Solitarev was found at the Jotlov Pass with two hats, a scarf. I'm sorry, this is taking a long time. I, I apologize. Uh, but this is the last one. This is, I, this is the last autopsy report. Semen Volotorev was found at the Jotlov Pass with two hats, scarf, shirt, long-sleeve shirt, black sweatshirt, sweater, and a coat with two upper buttons unbuttoned. It was fairly clear that the guy didn't die from the cold. On the contrary, the den was, pretty warm, was a pretty warm place for him, which these four had denned down before they died. Um, his lower part of the body was protected by underwear, two pairs of pants, and a pair of skiing pants. He had a 
He had a copy of the newspaper, several coins, compass, and other few items. His legs were protected by a pair of socks and a pair of warm leather handmade shoes, shoes known as burka. They probably couldn't keep him warm for a long time, but in the den, it was sufficient in keeping the man alive. Additionally, the body of Zolotorov had a camera around his neck, and it is clearly seen on the pictures. We should add that this camera became a complete surprise to Yuri Yudin. He assumed the group had only four cameras that there were found in the tent, and all of a sudden, a fifth camera turned out on the body. Unfortunately, melting snow damaged the film, but the question still lingers. Why did he leave, why did he leave the tent with a camera, and why did he take two pictures to the trip? One was used on the daily basis, and everyone saw it. It was left in the tent and discovered there by the search party. But another was hidden throughout a journey and was found only by Semin Zolterov when he died. His eyeballs were missing. He was missing soft tissue around the eyes and the eyebrow. Bone was exposed. Flare chest, broken two, three, four, five, and six ribs on the right side. Two fractured lines. Uh, open wound on the right side with exposed bone. So that, that sums up the autopsy report. And again, I apologize. It was a very, very long read. But important to stress the amount of damage that these people had undergone. And at the jotlovpass.com, there was a picture of the last four survivors that I thought was kind of interesting. I'm going to bring it up here. As you can see, the top three people, they were trying to get up the pass, and the top three bodies were left. I don't know if they were huddling together, together to uh, keep heat or what, or if they were placed there by the body on the bottom and did, you know, did that person die in the act of trying to lay their, their friends to rest? Or was he trying to get up there too to conserve energy and conserve heat and just died from, from his injuries? I don't know. But the whole, the whole scene is, is, is a mystery. So what are your thoughts on that, Chad? <clears throat> well, like you and I were talking the other day, it's a bunch of little on their own, you know, peculiarities that on their own are just that. They're just odd little occurrences. Mm -hmm. When you start adding up nine people who die within a day to, say, five days of each other in a group, they don't, not one, not one reason ever presented covers all of the damage, mm -hmm. you know, broken ribs, you know, two through six, but in two perfectly straight lines, they're broken mm -hmm. with no exterior damage in those areas. Mm -hmm. The, the reasonable thought process would be some kind of infrasound. Mm-hmm. Used to do that, but the the precision in the line doesn't fit that. Mm -hmm. An avalanche doesn't fit. Paradoxical undressing doesn't fit because it was, you know, survival at that point where the bodies were undressed. Right. <clears throat> it starts out with the what made them leave the tent. Mm-hmm. 
you know, if anything could be pointed to a reason for leaving the tent, then I think the whole mystery of it all would be solved. Mm-hmm. Because you don't leave your tent in that. To rip the tent open from the inside, or at least at least what we've been told was the tent was ripped from the inside. Mm-hmm. Now, they did have a cooking stove. If you notice, a lot of the reports have burnt clothing. Right. They did have a cooking stove. It was homemade. It had an exhaust pipe that went out of the tent. Mm-hmm. Could they have accidentally been poisoning themselves with CO2? Somebody realized it and they started to tear open the tent to get out instead of just going to the front and opening it and leaving and collecting your, your items, your clothes, your shoes. Doesn't really make sense. Yeah, because if you think about it, most of the time with the CO2, it's an odorless gas. Mm-hmm. And most people would have succumbed to it in their sleep and never noticed it or would have fallen yeah. asleep and never noticed yeah, it. Yeah, they, they, yeah, exactly. They would have just ingested so much to the point that they would have just passed out and died. Yeah, yeah. But so, they did say that there were two people standing outside the tent that were fully dressed or theorized that they were standing outside the tent. Yeah. So, so you would have thought that, you know, they would have found them, but yet they still well, tore, tore out from the inside. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're, if you're camping and you suspect something's inside the tent, you're not going to cut your only shelter open mm-hmm. to get out. You're going to use the door. If, it, you know, even if your two friends are standing outside of it, you know, I don't think at this point two people were holding seven other people hostage inside of a tent. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not with the later actions of the members of the group counting two of them that they surmise were outside of the tent whenever this event happened mm-hmm. were found with two other bodies. Right. You know... And, and seemed to be the four that had lived the longest or three. Yeah. Four that had lived the longest of this, you know, this event, mm-hmm. you know, avalanche doesn't make sense. Inconsistent wounds. Right. Um, you know, also the fact that the footprints that they found, cause they found footprints leading from the tent. Right. Yeah. 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 There was a, what was it? Four sets that were going down towards the cedar tree. Yeah. And there was the ones that uh, went off in the other direction that were kind of spread out. One, two, three stretched out from each other going yeah. further down the pass. And then you had the other four that we showed the picture that were mm-hmm. trying to go up the pass and then made that little den. So, but yeah. if it were an avalanche, why run towards it? Cause it was coming down from the top of the pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I mean, but they, but they were buried. But they were buried after two months under twelve feet of snow mm-hmm. in a mountain where they were there in February. They had another two months of snow coming, mm-hmm. high elevation. 
it's covered in oh, snow, yeah. more oh, snow. Constantly. Yeah. Not saying there couldn't have been a post event at Avalanche. Right, right. But well, go ahead. Go ahead. It's it just, it's very, in, this is what makes it so interesting to people is the fact that it is so inconsistent on any one theory. Mm hmm. It's now, bodies, not, to, not, to cut, not to cut you off for a second, but Gary is mentioning a lot about hunger and, and kind of like the uh, the movie Alive where the soccer team nope. gets stranded. There's no nope. signs of cannibalism. There's no signs that they ran out of food. They, they found food. They found food in their stomachs and in the tent, um, in the cook stove, there was still bacon and stuff like that. Right. So this isn't a sign of cannibalism. It isn't a sign of you're so hungry, you turn yourself into a monster. They were well prepared, well experienced. And this just happened. This this was some sort of a freak accident. Now, there are 15, 16 or more um, conflicting theories of what happened to uh the nine adventurers and according to the richest.com from 16 down to one you have the avalanche theory and I'll, if you don't mind chat i'll just read through these of yeah what, you know there's the uh paradoxical undressing or paradoxical undressing um weapons testing um ufo and aliens of course why not um, classified missile tests, which that's kind of part of what I'm leaning towards. Um, then <laughs> a Yeti, which I'll get into that one. Uh, satanic ritual. You know, why not? You got to always throw one of them in there. And the Mansi tribe, because it was also thought that the Mansi tribe, um, I guess they're fairly aggressive and they don't like when outsiders get into their territory and whatnot and they could be uh dangerous which i'll i'll read a little bit about each one of these as we get into them uh yuri yudin um the 10th member which we'll talk about that wrong place at the wrong time which again is kind of one of the things i was thinking with the with the missiles um a complete hoax Random energy event, which is kind of like infrasound, I guess, is kind of. And then there's the coupe d'etat, which I don't know what that means. We'll talk about it. Uh, and they never left the village alive. So they were taken out there, which we'll get into that. An asteroid. And government assassination. So those are 15 or 16 uh, conflicting theories. So we could talk about each one. Um, anyone in particular you want to start with? Or do you just want to start from the top, work our way down? Um, yeah, let's, let's start from the top. Just that way we don't miss any of them. Cause... Okay. All right. So number 16, an avalanche, which... I kind of am on that side, but for a different reason, I'll just read what they have here. And again, this is the richest. Actually, here, I'll just do this. Copy, 
And I'll put it into the show notes or the uh, comments here for you guys to check out too. You could do a little bit of research uh, as we go along here. <laughs> yeah, it is Russia. Yeah, that's right, Joey. Uh, so an avalanche. This is the accepted mainstream answer, like we said before. Still a theory, however, since evidence is lacking. The group was on the ascent through the pass when the weather turned against them. Lost in the storm, the group got off track and ended up changing course. Uh, due west, up the slope to the peak known as 1027, which local tribe of the Mansi call Kalat Sikal, or Death Mountain. When the mountaineers realized their mistake, they, they made camp. Not in the nearby trees, which would have provided shelter, but right there in the open. Something Igor Jotlov, the group leader and experienced climber, would have known not to do. No matter, all seven men and two women possessed the same class of skills, so they all should have known better. So that's, again, another thing that would kind of make you think that this had to have been some sort of cat catastrophic event, whether it was an attack a force of nature or something these people ran ill prepared if it was something that they could have expected like even even with an avalanche i would think that they would know how to kind of bounce back from that they could have gone back and gotten their their tent and the rest of their supplies you know what i mean it's almost like something was trying to keep them away from where they were trying to go like they were being attacked but it, nonetheless the avalanche hit at night, the thundering sound of ice and snow speeding down the slope at speeds of up to 80 miles per hour woke the group. In a panic, they ripped their way out of the tent, cut their way out, in fact, running for their lives. It's doubtful that they would have put on clothes or shoes. The, the escape attempt was futile. They went in different directions, three groups running for cover. Two groups made it to the tree line that provided some cover while one was caught in the open and tried to hide in the ravine. However... They ran down. They were run down by a sheet of traveling ice at the speeds of a semi truck coming downhill. Your thoughts on the avalanche? Complete bullshit. And why so? First of all, the footprints don't indicate that they were running. Mm -hmm. And probably would have been covered. And would have been covered. The tent would not have been found in the condition it was found. Because mm -hmm. if it was hit by an avalanche, it wouldn't still be upright and somewhat tent like right it would have been crushed and it would have been crushed the bodies like it, if these the people that were hit by the as they say traveling sheet of ice on uh, the speed of a semi truck well how would they have been the last ones to live and got the, the clothes off the other ones at that point mm -hmm. doesn't right. fit right again it's it, none of these fit <laughs> like i have a theory of my own but well, let's go through these and then we'll talk yeah. about our theories. But I, I agree with you. I don't think it was a natural avalanche, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Paradoxical undressing. Soviet investigators and other, other, and other years after have um, posted that hypothermia is the cause of death. Evidence for a massive avalanche was lacking, like Chad had pointed out. And it made more sense as to why the expedition members shed their clothing. While hypothermia is caused by exposure to freezing temperature, a process occurs as the body gets colder and colder. The, the hypolamus uh, being cold-induced goes into critical meltdown. 
Being the part of the brain responsible for body temperature, it begins shutting down and in a last-ditch effort begins increasing the body's temperature to compensate for the difference. They must have stripped their clothes off from the overheating caused by this defense mechanism and died shortly after since paradoxical undressing is part of the final stages of hypothermia. So this causes the experienced climbers to run from their tent some cutting their way out, split off into, in, into three directions, receive fractures, lacerations, and one who had severe brain damage, yet no exterior damage to the skull. This theory alone is dubious at best. Some having simply added the avalanche and hypothermia ex explanations together for the ultimate theory, despite the lack of evidence for an avalanche. There were the two bodies found with what, with what amounts to uh, ripped scrapes, um, scraps of clothing from the others why did they not try and stop the others why wouldn't they observe a way of staying warm humans have used since the beginning of time by huddling together against the storm so again you would think that they would have worked together they were experienced they were there were forests there, there were there were so many different means to stay warm why would they have ripped their way out of the tent it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, number 14, weapons testing. This theory suggests that on the night of February 2nd, 1959, the Hammer and Sickles secret military was testing weapons in the secluded mountain range. Maybe they knew the nine mountaineers were there. Maybe they didn't. More likely, they didn't care. Whatever the cause may be, the Soviet government may have been testing infrasound technology. Infrasound is the use of low frequency sound to subdue, demobilize, and even kill targets. However, the only sound heard was likely their screams. Infrasound is at such a frequency that the human ears cannot detect it. The only thing they notice is the burning, then panic. The U.S. has, the US has a weapon called the Active Daniel system that works along these lines. The sound can range from mildly, mildly irritating to lethal even causing burns on the skin. That's interesting. That would explain why they ran in a panic, trying to escape something that was seemingly everywhere in opposite directions. This could account for the missing tongue, biting it off in agony, the burns on the body, maybe even the brain damage. Who knows what frequency the Soviets were testing. But it doesn't account for the fire being built for the campsite, being in complete shambles, nor does it account for why their clothing, well, some, tested at high levels of radiation, which, Chad, you want to talk about that? The possibilities of the radiation? Oh, well, two of the nine had worked in a lab that dealt with uranium. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, they were exposed to uranium on a regular basis. This is also before the time of wearing the little badges that tell you how much radioactivity you've been exposed to at that given time. So could their clothing have had, you know, could they have worn one of their coats to work one day? It got exposed. They, you know, both of them just happened to have, I mean, there was only three items of clothing that tested as radioactive. Right. And it wasn't, the radioactivity level was not super, super high. It was about 60, the highest item was about 6,500. 
in this in the scale that is used for radio radioactivity. Mm-hmm. So it's not super crazy. I mean, the Earth is you know radioactivity is all around us. You know, there it's a normal feature of the Earth. Mm-hmm. But for three of them to have it, my only thing with the radioactivity on the clothing that bothers me again with you know <laughs> this theory is if if you were sleeping in a tent with nine other people and your coat had radioactive particles on it, mm-hmm. those other people's clothing would have a chance of exposure to that radioactivity as you're moving, as you're, you know, you taking off your coat and throwing your coats on a pile or, you know, hanging them out or, you know, huddled up together, you're going to be touching other people. So therefore radioactive particles would have been shared amongst the group. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're going to be exposed no matter what. And it, cause radio, uh, Radioactive particles are hard to, to, to get away from. I mean, look at all the stuff that's with the with the the nuclear plant, the Fukushima or Fukushima or whatever. It's still everywhere. Look at Chernobyl; it's still everywhere. Like it doesn't you can't just wash it off that easily. When it's when it sticks, it sticks. So yeah, I agree. I think it was because they were exposed because of their jobs, and uh, it just kind of spread out amongst the rest of the party or it could be like they're talking about that missile testing some of the missiles could have had radioactive material they could have been like semi-nuclear weapons or you know whatever the atomic weapons that were being tested you know and they could have been exposed to it that way but only three items are are radioactive well it could be number 13 could be aliens. <laughs> I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. Indeed. Or UFOs. Number 13, UFO and aliens. This is a very popular theory. Of course it is, because that's where everybody goes to. For the incident and the draw is likely that one can come to just about any conclusion under this banner. There were reports of lights in the sky over the past at the time. There are the autopsy photos that show one of the adventurers with what appears to be orange skin. Um, the followers of this idea state that the aliens attacked the campers, chased them into the woods, performed experiments on and tortured them, and then left. Not only are the chances of an advanced civilization finding this tiny blue dot astronom- astronomical, one could say with confidence that an avalanche that an advanced civilization wouldn't travel all this way to essentially torture a group of nine people in the middle of nowhere. If they were that uh, nefarious, I imagine uh, there would be a larger test group. Right. So I, now there were balls of light that were witnessed by the, the party but also the research parties and, and people in the surrounding areas observed balls of light throughout the time the adventurers were out on their trek. So, again, that kind of comes in part with people thinking, oh, it could have been a UFO, an extraterrestrial. But at the time, they were also doing missile testing. And at that time, it was top secret. 
So the likelihood of it being, you know, common knowledge would be low. And also it's not familiar. So if you're seeing these missiles being fired out in the middle of nowhere and they're at a certain altitude and they're traveling at high, high rate of speed, it could appear as extraterrestrial or an unidentified flying object. Well, there was a group 30 miles from the Atwaf group who mm-hmm. witnessed three glowing lights in the air. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that the Soviet military was testing at this time was aerial mines mm-hmm. that explode above objects shooting shrapnel down. Mm-hmm. So could the lights they witnessed have been a test of those? You know, in this in that area, and that's why people did see these lights and stuff like that. Um, could that sound have panicked the group in the tent thinking it was an avalanche, scaring them out of the tent, them running off? Because three of them started to return to the tent at some point, mm-hmm. or at least were positioned where their bodies were found was positioned as if they were heading back to the tent. Right. So, you know, but it's also an area where people still to this day report seeing UFOs and phantom lights and plasma balls and all that. So I, I not that I would say it's alien, but it could be a naturally occurring light source. Thomas Mintz posted a, a good uh, comment there. Pre-launch flares where they would launch the flares out there, like basically like they they they. They descend slowly. They illuminate the area so that way they could kind of light up the uh, the target area, mm-hmm. and that could definitely explain um, why there was you know three in a row because they're light basically lighting up a a, a, a missile runway, and then pew, 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 boom 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 blew them up you know blew up part of the mountain because like a lot of the stuff that you were saying, number twelve on the uh, conflicting theories is classified missile test. And strange orange glowing lights in the sky over the area had been reported for weeks leading up to the incident. It's speculated that the group of adventurers witnessed a missile test. It was 1959, and the idea of missiles was not a well-known and would not when would have been top secret, like we had said. It could explain why the hiker's skin was orange as well. Missile fuel contains unsymmetrical uh, dimethylhydrazine as one of the key ingredients. This... Uh, bipropellant has a strong fishy smell and can turn things an off color of orange if exposed to oxygen. While the hikers were asleep, a test missile crashed not far from the camp. The sound of an incoming rocket woke them and and scared and they dispersed in disorder. The sound of a flying missile is comparable to thunder with heavy rain, only louder than if said thunder cracking right above you. In such a state of fright, they did anything to run and hide, even ripping their way out with no time to dress and scattered into the night. Then the rocket crashed nearby, causing injuries, broken ribs, brain damage from the shock, etc., etc., etc. And could have also possibly caused small avalanches that they were trying to say, well, there were signs of avalanche activity, blah, blah, blah. You know, if they were hitting around the area, it could have, you know, loosened some pockets of snow a little bit came crashing down but not enough to do enough damage as a an actual avalanche but the the uh 
the force of the missiles and and any kind of shrapnel or debris could have yeah they could have been bombarded by missiles and just taken a beating and they were all dispersing and some of them that were surviving they 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 realized the fate of their friends they started taking clothes that they needed and because they were already in such a heart like like a traumatic state they just they just succumbed to the cold because they were too badly injured to to survive uh. I, I lean more towards the, the missile theory. I, I like to me that that makes the most sense. Yeah, but I can poke holes in that missile theory quick too. Go for it. Um, missiles had been around since way before that. Mm-hmm. Were used extensively in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, all these kids were science based between engineering and physics and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So they would have been exposed to or the knowledge of rockets and mm-hmm. rocketry. It was not <clears throat> a hidden thing. The test facility, yes, could be hidden. Yeah. But the knowledge of engineers knowing about rockets and rocketry at that point, you know, that wouldn't have been it wouldn't have fit the v2 rockets i mean you have you have the scandinavian ghost rockets that were going off allegedly from russia over you know sweden and stuff like that in 1946 that made right. world news that's true but even though they they have the engineering background you don't know what their background in engineering was they might have had knowledge of rockets and how they work but you know how it is you could read about something you could learn about something but until you actually experience that the sounds and everything you're out in the middle of nowhere just you know taking a taking a hike trying to achieve your your next degree level to become a master hiker or traverser or adventurer and you're in the middle of the night, you're sound asleep, and you start hearing this stuff going off. You're, you're not going to react. You're not going to try to think logically. You're going to hear stuff blowing up around you. You're going to hear this god-awful sound. You're going, you're, your first instinct is to run, to, to protect yourself, to take shelter. I don't think that it would have been that easy for them just because they were academics. I don't think it would have been that easy for them just to be like, oh, yeah, it's a missile, no big deal. Well, even if they did recognize it as a missile if is if they're going off all around them you don't you don't prepare for that it's not but, like all right well okay they're they're going off we'll just we'll just sit here and relax but other people would have seen them more people you don't just drop missiles and people 30 miles away saw three lights and this group of kids saw them there would be people for miles around that would see them coming down Right, but if they're out in the middle of nowhere and they're they're being hit at that time, what do you but do? Then, but then there would be a government logical explanation. Like, the people who have contributed to this over the years would have said, no, they were testing missiles and these kids wandered into the wrong place. Yeah, but, I mean, you know as well as I do. Do you think the government's going to admit to that? that they, the government's, they, they the government's that, not, but they do a symposium every so many years on this, and they bring back the living search party members and people from the area to discuss it. So you think at this point one of them would have said, yeah, we, we knew that it, 
it was missile testing, but we couldn't say nothing until next. Yeah. It, 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 because all this stuff, it, it's every theory has legs, but every theory is, is easily sidetracked by little key details. I do. I honestly kind of believe more in it was a military. If any of these theories are true or, mm-hmm. or plausible, I would believe more in the missile testing because they do have a photo of some glowing light. And mm-hmm. from what they can tell, it's in the sky from the cameras that were found in the tent. Right. They also, some people claim they found scrap metal in that area. Mm-hmm. Which would be consistent with neither a plane breaking up or bomb casing or bomb casings. But again, you pan the way they die doesn't make sense. Then. Right. Once you realize it's not an avalanche, do not try to go the nine tenths of a mile back to get your shoes and start like. Hey guys, we need to start heading down. We don't head up, we head away. Yeah. We try to get off the mountain. Even though getting off the mountain wasn't necessarily a um wouldn't mean you were necessarily safe. Yeah. Because you still had miles to traverse to get to an inhabited town. Right, exactly. So they they really they had nowhere to go and they did make that miscalculation where they went, <clears throat> where, where they went off course, which ended up putting them in the wrong place at the wrong time, which is another one of the theories. And uh, Thomas Mintz has another good point down here. If they were physics students and new students to physics and knew about the missiles or rockets or weapons, they would be certainly scared of anything they, they heard because they would be familiar with what they were listening to. And furthermore, because they were off course, Maybe they didn't realize that they were off course and they were thinking, all right, well, we're off, uh, you know, to where we're supposed to be on the pass, not within the range of where we know they're testing these missiles. And then they heard that in the middle of the night. They're like, oh, crap, I know what that is. And then all of a sudden, boom, 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 everything's blown up around them. And that, of course, too, the would be covered up the effects of that. And you don't necessarily like you said, you don't necessarily know what they were testing. Was it actual bombs? Was it other kind of, you know, biochemical warfare? Was it other kind of, you know, military ammunition? You know what I mean? Because uh, it could have been an infrasound kind of bomb or, or something, like you said, that could have broken the bones without leaving any kind of external abrasions or, or, or bleeding. Okay. But the infrasound weapon, I, I don't think so. No. Just because, no, because the Russian military wouldn't have used something. If they found out it worked that well, that it cut two straight lines in the human rib cage without damaging the outside of it, uh-huh. um, we'd all be speaking Russian. That's true. And well, and, and two, if it were just bombs or missiles or whatever, uh, it could have just been the force from the blast that broke the ribs. And I mean, it would, that wouldn't necessarily leave bruises. You know what I mean? The force of the blast wouldn't necessarily leave a bruise. It could very well damage um, bone and whatnot. You know what I mean? Cause if it, if it blew them backwards, you know, but then there would be, there would be signs of them being blown backwards. There you go. 
That's talent. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with. To me, out of the more plausible secret government Russian involvement things, that that is the more plausible. Yeah, I'm just playing skeptic on all of it because oh, no, I don't no, think. You have to. Yeah, I don't think any one of them ever makes sense completely. I will present one that kind of sort of makes more sense to me in the grand scheme of things mm-hmm. eventually, but get on to the Yeti. Yes. Yes. Number 11, the Yeti. And I don't know why, and I'm not going to try and reload or anything like that because we already had technical issues, but what I'll, what I'll bring up um, is, is basically our show poster. I'll, I'll bring it up. It's the same picture. It's just in night vision, but you'll get the idea. So, one of the theories is that they were attacked by a Yeti. The select group that populate that postulate a Yeti, Bigfoot, Abominable Snowman, or whatever, had something to do with the mystery of Dead Mountain. That maybe the hikers encountered not just one of the ever-elusive creatures, but perhaps a pack of them, or a tribe, or whatever you want to call them, a family group. Um <clears throat> Uh, stories and legends of the cryptozoological beast have run rampant throughout the areas of the Ural Mountains. Much as one could expect, the stories are all generally surmised with the phrase, a large, smelly, lumbering creature covered in matted hair came out of the woods, looked at me, my friends, uh, crossed down and up and something and blah, 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 this way and that way. Then they turned and walked with the abnormally huge stride back into the woods. You know, the, the usual Bigfoot tales hundreds of sightings have been reported in the area of the infamous range and the and the forest that surrounds it of bigfoot and other said creatures the yeti came upon the camp and began curiously looking through it this startles at least one of the russian expedition party members awake they in turn alert the others panicked from the sight of the over seven foot tall monster they all run for their lives into the surrounding area however the yeti is not alone and he said Several of his kin are easily, easily overtake the climbers and brutally murder them. The few that made it to the trees hid and died from exposure while trying to wait out the Yeti clan. This theory only conflicts with the evidence, but with reality as well. One may ask why the Yeti would attack in the first place, since they normally tend to flee. Then, as impossible, the odds are that you may even spot one. Several are present. Because in order for there to be so much physical trauma to the hikers, there would have been would have had to have been more, and suddenly bloodthirsty. This is this one is actually harder to accept than aliens traversing the galaxy. All the same, there are entire sites dedicated to the idea that Bigfoot's Russian cousin is responsible for the incident. Uh, no empirical evidence has been gathered to support it, and there was also a show on the Discovery Channel. Was it Discovery Channel? Uh, Probably. It was that uh, mockumentary. Yeah, yeah. The Yeti, the Killer Lives or something like that, I think it was called. Nah. Uh, actually, that was really good. I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching it, though I thought it was all complete bullshit. Now, there is a picture, one of the last pictures taken. Uh, I'll bring it up. It's our, our show poster. If you could see into the background, there's that uh, being this humanoid form in the background. It was something that was stalking the group. Now to me, looking at that picture, I see darker pants, a lighter jacket, 
and a darker hat or something covering the face. A lot of them had worn those, uh, I don't know, they look like a trapper style hat where they, you would, they were fur lined and you could fold them down over the ears mm-hmm. and ties under the chin. And again, it's an old grainy black and white. Obviously, the quality is poor. You're not going to get a lot of physical details. In no way, shape, or form is this out of the realm or the range of a human being. You can see where the hands fall right around waist level, not down past the knee. As many people say, a Sasquatch's arms are longer than a human's because uh, they also theorize that a Bigfoot or a Bigfoot-like creature has the ability to be quadruped as well as bipedal. Uh, shoulders are not that wide. You know, again, just the physical char- characteristics of this picture, nothing in that makes me think, oh my God, they were stalked by an elusive beast. It doesn't look like it at all. It just looks like another person. Now, that could contribute to another theory where they were being targeted by either government or some kind of secret groups could be that satanic ritual. But again, as Chad always says to poke holes in that theory, there were no other footprints found anywhere other than what were made by the members of the party. So as far as a Yeti or Almasty or any kind of, cryptozoological mythical you know undocumented creature i think it's a bunch of shit to me the photo kind of seems like you know when you're out with your friends and there's always that one friend that is super slow compared to the rest of his and you're always waiting for them to catch up it <laughs> just reminds me, me. <laughs> well that's what it reminds me of it just reminds me of uh zolotarov who was noted to have kind of kept his distance from the rest of the group. Um, like they're waiting for him and they just decided, well, let's snap a picture, you know. Yeah, or maybe they were skeptical and they were doing that on purpose to try and kind of document that, hey, you know, he was the one who was always away from the group. Mm-hmm. He was kind of the outcast. Well, he was the outcast. He was mm-hmm. 37 years old. Mm-hmm. Died Which on his... were pretty much early 20s, like you said. 21 to 23. Mm-hmm. He um, had a less than honest history about him. Mm-hmm. Like in his actual words and, and writings, his history doesn't match up with the original Zolotarov. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were skeptical of him. They, you know, he wasn't friends with them. He wasn't, right a member of their, you know, peer group. He just kind of somehow said, Hey, do you mind if I come with? And they were all kind of like, eh, well, you know what, you know, he's experienced. He's not going to hold us back. You know, he, he's older. He has military experience. Let's take him with us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and, and didn't he, and you might've already said this, he used a lot of different aliases. Well, not the, not necessarily aliases. It's very common for your, especially in, in Russia and stuff like that, for your family to call you by different names than your government name. Mm-hmm. He went by Sasha. 
which is the Russian, uh, you know, form of Alexander. And his mother called him that. His alleged wife knew him as that. They didn't know him by Simon um, Alexandrov Tarkov or whatever. Yeah, I, I lost him there. I, I got three. I got three Zolotarov. I got three Russian names in a row, and I kind of couldn't do it. But uh, yeah, so I mean, it wasn't uncommon. The fact, though, that his 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 biography in his writings in college and stuff like that don't historically match up with what he was doing during World War II. Right. Um, that plays a little bit into my theory later, so I'm going to kind of hold back on a little bit of that. Sure. So satanic cults, I don't think this even needs an explanation. They believe no. that they were... Igor might have been a member of a satanic cult or become involved in a cult, and this was something to lead his friends out and sacrifice them. Yeah, I don't. And he so. ended up dead too. So I mean, that's really, I that's just let's let's blame it on yeah. Satanist and yeah, yeah. That, I'm not even going to spend time, but that was one of them. Satanic ritual number nine, the Mansi tribe. Uh, this one I actually think could be plausible. Because they, they are known to be a, a an aggressive group. But again, I'll, do you want me to read it or just kind of brief it? Just brief it because right, we, yeah. can, we can discuss them. Again, it goes back into the same thing with what we said with the Yeti. There's no other footprints. There's no other indication of any other people being there at the time these people died. So it being another group, highly unlikely. Because even if this, this group was trying to attack them with weapons there were no indications on the autopsy reports that they were attacked like that. The way their, their injuries were, were too traumatic than just being attacked by a group of these tribal people. So again, I don't think it was local natives at all. Number eight, Yuri Yudin, the lone survivor of the group. I, I, I want to read this one because I think it, this has uh, a little bit more info that we didn't talk about yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. The lone survivor of the group, Yuri Yudin, was the 10th member of the team. And after arriving at the train station near the settlement of Vizai, he fell ill and had to stay behind. So the other nine adventurers said their farewells, set out on the trek towards the starting point of their final ascent. Yuri Yudin would never see the comrade, his comrades again. Well... What if he did see them one last time? It's speculated in small circles that villagers witnessed Yudin, Jotlov, uh, Lyudmila, yeah, Dubinina, and in a sort of love triangle, and that the two suitors were seen arguing about it at the station. It is said that Jotlov purposefully let Yudin behind, telling the others, including uh, Lyudmalia, that Yudin had fallen ill, when in reality, Yuri was at a supply depot attached to the train station, purchasing something Jotlov had sent, for him, sent him for. When Yudin realized that he had been betrayed, 
Suppose witnesses said he set off in another vehicle headed in the same direction, then mysteriously reappeared at the village settlement on February 8th. On the 11th, the others were supposed to be arriving as well. Of course, they never did. It's possible that for the above or any reason, Yuri not only caught up with the others, but outmaneuvered them and staying hidden that long wouldn't have been uh, wouldn't he have needed a fire to stay warm at night? Uh, if so, then someone would have spotted it at night, right? Well, it makes an interesting story. It's highly unlikely, especially since Yuri Yudin had returned home long before the time anyone spotted him in the settlement on the eighth. Then again, we only know what we what the investigators tell us. Maybe out of jealousy, he sought revenge. All the same, why would that incite the type of panic that this event had had? Uh, how did he cause the brain damage without fracturing the skull? Most of all, why would nine fully grown, physically fit Russian mountain climbers simply allow one man to overpower them? Again, there's a lot of now, empty... Go ahead. No, no, finish what you're going to say, but then I want to say something. I was just going to say there's a lot of open ends on that. And and again, it's, 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 an, it's another hard pill to swallow. Now, a piece of it is not super hard to swallow. What's that? Think back to what you said when you were reading the autopsy reports mm -hmm. of the metatarsals in Jotloff's hands being broken. Mm -hmm. Similar to damage received in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Right. So maybe the fight did happen. Not necessarily that Yudin was the, the cause of the later event but maybe the actual fight at the train station happened between the two of them. That's true. Jatloff got a few, got a few shots and broke his hand. I've broke my hand before. I know what it feels like. It would yeah. suck. But, but wouldn't, wouldn't there be more reports and more proof or, or, or they would have seen on Yudin that he was in a fight. Maybe he was smart enough to have ducked his head. And that's how Jotloff broke his hand, was hitting the crown of the skull. When it would be above his hairline, be above his hat, you'd never see a bruise. That's true. That's I true. mean, I have bruises from training all over the side of my head that you don't see unless I don't have hair. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that is, I, I think the possible little love triangle you know, they were all college friends, you know, the, the friend who lust after his friend's girlfriend because that was the outlaw's girlfriend. Yeah. You know, one of the pictures is when he's going to return is him and her hugging before he leaves. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it could there have been a fight between the two of them? I believe, yes, there could have been. With mm -hmm. the consistent injuries due to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat of the broken bones landing the second and the fifth finger. So he didn't land the punch with these two knuckles that you're supposed to land it with. He landed with the lower part of the hand, which is called a boxer break. Yeah. Yeah. Because boxers, when they miss, they lower, they hit with that part of the hand. They break the metatarsals back in the backside of the hand. Yeah. So could there, that that's the only evidence of physical struggle. Right. Like cuts and scrapes and stuff like that, you're traversing woods, mountains, rocks. You're going to get scraped up. Oh, and plus you're you're freezing cold. Even if you're scraping against like the the crusty snow, like when the the upper 
layer of snow freezes. You're mm. you're running through that because a lot of it was the lower legs and the knees and stuff. Yeah. That, that stuff turns into glass, and and that that mm-hmm. could ex- easily explain a lot of the the uh, lacerations in the skin and and clothing. Yeah, it just doesn't explain the the broken metatarsals. Right, exactly. But unless, I mean, I'm not... unless he was like, they didn't have anything to to break the branches, and maybe he was punching at the branches to get firewood that because there were signs of a fire. You know what yeah. I mean? Maybe he was just punching the branches, trying because you know when you break a break a branch and there's that, always that last little bastard piece that hangs on. Uh, Maybe he was punching at it just to, you know what I mean, try and break it off. Yeah, or he was trying to maybe dig into icy snow. True. Yep. And punching, punching trying to break the ice and something like that. So again, another theory presented, but too many strings that lead off the center, the center piece of it. Right. Exactly. So, number seven, wrong place at the wrong time. It's possible that Jotlov and the others, while trekking through the mountains, witnessed something they shouldn't have. Perhaps a government agency was testing or using uh, super-secret weaponry or other apparatuses. And uh, these poor nine souls, unbeknownst to the location of the test, stumbled upon it all the same. Uh, Speculations suggest the nine climbers came across a valley, ravine, or any other open space along their trek and observed a government agency performing some sort of experiment, test, or drill that was never meant to be seen. Others say the mountaineers witnessed a UFO recovery operation. Again, back to the UFOs. When the group noticed they had been spotted and and were not being chased down, they deviated off course and were forced to camp on the slope. Exhausted, they had no choice but to succumb to sleep. Something happened to wake at least one of the campers and the civilians attempted to flee in a panic. Using government-issued weaponry, the troops easily dispatched some of the hikers and lost others in the woods where they knew the barely clothed hikers would not survive the night. Witnesses have claimed to see a group of soldiers coming down from the area just a few days before the search and rescue operations discovered the abandoned camp. Of course, Soviet and now Russian officials deny any such involving government entities are associated with the incident. Again, there were no signs of being shot or or any kind of weapons, uh, uh, weapon use. Go ahead. And and no other tracks. Exactly. Now, you could say, oh, they covered their tracks. They cover, you know, they're, they're military. They'd know how to cover their tracks. There would still have to be people seeing them ascending the mountain. Mm-hmm. There are supposedly witnesses that saw them coming off the mountain. Who are these witnesses? I always love this. There's these random, well, witnesses say, give me one story that dates back to somebody that lived in that area who went on record after the fall of the Soviet Union that said, I witnessed military troops coming off that mountain two days after they supposedly died. Right. <clears throat> it just, there, there's no, there's never a name attached to it. Right. Right. Well, again, we're going back to these uh, conflicting theories. Number six is the hoax. It didn't really happen or did it even really happen? Uh, Is it possible that the story was created along with the climbers as a propaganda event? Did the Soviet Union want NATO to think something strange had happened? Maybe it was the KGB who even started rumors of missile tests, infrasound, or other military fringe testing, creating the illusion that the hammer and and sickle had created 
uh, something that was worth the controversy or to plant the idea that they were ahead of the United States in black ops weaponry. After all, it's plausible that a branch with enough power could have created the story, produced identities, paid actors to portray families, or simply used threats to incite coordination or cooperation. Yuri, the sole survivor, could have also been an actor or even an agent of the party himself. After all, he did enter Soviet military service upon returning home. During the Cold War, smoke and mirror operations were standard operating procedure for both East and West. Propaganda had been around since the beginning of po politics and was streamlined, most notably by Joseph uh, Goebbels, Gar yeah, the Minister of Propaganda for Nazi Germany. While a horrible man, he was a genius at creating the fluff to get the millions of people to believe in an ideal. Uh, with his use of stories involving German victories with impossible odds in ancient settings and flashing between scenes of battle and civil civilian life to entice a feeling of unity, he was a master of deceit, and many of his tactics were found in use today, even in advertisements. The Soviets took the, this, his craft and built it even bigger, taking the throne of propaganda. They were not just masters of it, they were natural savants. So in order to create a false sense of ad advancement, they created the incident to inspire a conjecture within enemy government, uh, possibly for reasons of distraction or a false show of uh, superiority. So that, that I buy. Because, I mean, look at the, look at the Yeti, the, the killer still lives or something like that. Like, it's, it's bullshit, but there's some people that would be like, oh, my God, it's true. It's, it's what happened. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it's propaganda, it is just smoke and mirrors. Okay, I can't wait any longer to present my idea. Go ahead. What if a this is a hoax mm -hmm. in a, in in a sense? What if these nine kids were selected to work in some Soviet secret facility? Mm -hmm. The last city they were in is a closed city. Before they, from the train, it's a closed Russian city. Uh -huh. It's also now famous for a bioweapons accident <laughs> that happened in the 90s there. It's still a closed city Westerners cannot get into. Yeah. What if these nine kids were selected because of genius-level intellect or, or whatever, uh -huh. or supposed genius-level intellect? So the government selects them, comes to them and says, look, for the greater good of the Soviet Union, you're going to disappear. This way we have no worries of you accidentally telling somebody what you do. Yeah. If you accidentally tell somebody in your family what you do, they slip and tell somebody else or a spy gets close to your family and all of a sudden the U.S. knows what we're working on, it's detrimental to our cause. Mm -hmm. If we have you guys go up in the mountains and disappear, and we find nine bodies, and we do enough damage to those nine bodies, and we find nine people that are similar enough that with some exposure damage would kind of look like you, Remember, there's only three open coffin funerals during this whole process for nine people. Right. Zolotarev has a military career already. 
had tried to get into several military schools and had been denied. Mm-hmm. Common tactic with clandestine agencies is to take the person who is a recruit and deny them access to something. Then bring them into the system that way. So yeah. they, don't, they don't show up on the records of a college. They were denied access. They don't show up as working for an agency. They were denied, their resume was denied, their, their application. Mm-hmm. So he applied to two military colleges after World War II, was denied by both of them, never went home and went to the Ural, Ural Polytechnic Institute. So could he have been the military government plant, KGB, um, KNV, any you know acronym of mm-hmm. Soviet intelligence agency? Could he have been the plant to recruit these kids? You know, the body buried in his grave has no maternal DNA match to his sister's daughter. Mm-hmm. So it's not the original Zolotarev in the grave. Yet the baby pictures and the pictures of this guy post-World War II look a lot alike. But the guy in the grave isn't him. The damage, if you remember reading some of it, said about pressure used by Stalin's secret police. Right. Cracking ribs. You get good enough at breaking bones on people, you don't leave marks on the outside. Yeah. You know, you'd have practice, you'd have the techniques refined. The tongue being, the tongue being missing and the fact that they found blood in the girl's stomach. If you want to silence somebody who was anti-communist government, cut out their tongue. Yeah. Cut it out while they're alive. It's, a, it's an example. Her tongue has never been found, allegedly. Now, some people claim it was somewhere yeah. else. So you take nine prisoners, two females and seven males, drop them randomly up in the snow. You take the nine kids... And they disappear into one of these secret, you know, closed off cities and go to work. Their families think they're dead. Nobody ever comes looking for them. You know, you're given a new identity and money. After the fall of the Soviet Union or after your usefulness, your family's dead most likely. Yeah. Your parents are dead. You know, they were in their 20s and the 50s by the 70s or 80s, still under communist rule into the 90s, your parents are dead. Yeah. Your nieces and nephews you would have never met, most likely, so you'd have no family to go and say, oh, I'm really Igor Jatloff. Yeah. You'd have no reason to come out against the government. You probably made enough money you know, in this deal to live comfortably the rest of your life. And honestly, after... 50 some years of living under this assumed identity, would you want anybody to know? Yeah. Would they even believe you? Yeah. I mean, well, look at, look at, um, the guy, uh, Curly Bill who came out and said he was, or I don't know, Bushy Bill, Bushy Bill who came out and claimed he was Billy the Kid in the 1920s. Yeah. Nobody believed him. Thought he was just some crazy guy. They interviewed him. Oh, this, you know, this lunatic here thinks he's, you know, Billy the Kid. Mm-hmm. Yet 
they found a photo of what they believe to be Billy the Kid after Billy the Kid was supposedly dead. Yeah. So, you know, how many people have come forward and said, no, I'm so-and-so years and years later, and people be like, no, you're not. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. You died in, in, on Dyatlov's pass. Yeah. No, I went to work for the government for the last yeah, year. Yeah, the majority of people are going to buy into that story, the hoax, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, after so many decades, it's common knowledge. You know what I mean? It is what it is. People believed it. That's what they were told. It's what it was. And, and then for somebody to come out and say, oh, I am one of the nine, the, you, you are going to be viewed and, and they're going to be an older person. So that this old crazy coot, you mm-hmm. know thinks he's this guy that died up in the mountains in the 50s, you know, and here he is trying to say that, oh, he's one of them. Nobody's going to believe it. Or, or if, even, if, even if he does try to convince, who's going to care? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, you're a footnote in history. You're, you're, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you're not really that interesting to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I just think it's the original Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Yeah, more and or less. I, yeah. I, I just think, honestly, I think it's more of a government setup to select these kids The use, you know, you couldn't use a car wreck and kill nine people back mm-hmm. then. The cars weren't that available to normal people. You couldn't use a train accident because you'd have to kill a lot of people and then claim these nine died. Yeah. And you couldn't load the car up with a bunch of co- or the train car up with a bunch of college students because that'd be too many people to account for. Mm-hmm. But if you had nine special kids who had intelligence and, and the ability to do something you needed done, you just make them disappear. Mm-hmm. Easiest way to make somebody disappear is make everybody believe they died. Right. Make them die in something they enjoyed doing. I mean, Zolotarov was quoted by another student, you know, as saying they will talk about this expedition for the rest of time or something along those lines. So the guy has a shady background story, military experience. Yudin joins the military shortly after that. Mm -hmm. Well, why would he have joined the military? Oh, because you're going to join the military. So if something, you know, accidentally goes wrong during basic training, you disappear too. Right. I mean, you know, I don't necessarily believe in conspiracy theories, but I do know that the Soviet system does dictate for a lot of this kind of stuff, not necessarily to be conspiracy, but be the truth. Right. No, I, that, of all these theories, that sounds the best. The Charles, <laughs> be the Charles Worth International Man of Mystery Theory. Uh huh. Exactly. So, so folks, when you guys share that, I would like credit for it. You know, <laughs> it's C H A R L E S W O R T H. One word. That's right. Because back to the other conflicting theories, you have number five, random energy event, uh, coup d'etat which mutiny, which where they all fight amongst each other. Um, they never left the village alive. Uh, an asteroid again, 
I'm uh, that that doesn't sound conclusive or government assassination, which in a way is kind of along the lines of your theory where they were just erased. So the, yeah, but that's the, link, the link to the richest is, is in the comments for anybody who wants to read further into it. But I don't, I don't think the last few need to be read. I mean, they are pretty much self-explanatory. Um, yeah. And again, there's a lot of holes in them. I mean, what is Cleo asking? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not actually looking at the comments because I'm on my phone again, so I don't know. What is that behind you under that desk chair by the boxes? I don't know what you're talking about. Over there? Right there? Right in there? Is that it? Right where I'm pointing? Right there? If that's what if that's what you're referring to, that it's a plastic bag with egg crates in it. <laughs> Chad asks me that every time. There's something moving behind, you know, it's a plastic bag. I have my ceiling fan running so it makes the plastic bag move. <laughs> yeah, that, it's a plastic bag. <laughs> uh, but thank you. Thank you for, for your concern. I do appreciate it. All right, so. In conclusion, like I said, I posted the link to the richest. You guys could read a little bit more if you want. There's so much out there. I mean, YouTube has a lot of great videos on this uh, topic. Um, but, and again, this show isn't about conspiracy theories. I don't really buy into them. I don't care for them because I just don't have time to get wrapped up in them. But this one just was so much in the line of... UFO, cryptozoology, uh, well, I guess conspiracy, but again, that's not our one of our big things, but we just felt it kind of was worth talking about because it was so bizarre. And I, I truly love your, your theory. Uh, honestly, that sounds the most logical. Well... It's the easiest digestible of them all mm -hmm. to me, I guess, because I came up with it. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it's sense. Neither, it's neither the original Blair Witch story. Because think about it. It doesn't get to the, Western, the westernized people of America and England and NATO countries for years. Mm -hmm. So to use it as a propaganda tool, not so much. But to somebody wants to write a book because they always say the first book written about this case was heavily censored by the government. Mm -hmm. Well, how do we know that? Is that not a tagline to sell uh, two live crew banned in the USA? Yeah. Sells millions of copies because the tagline is banned in the USA. Right. So the the original Russian book about this is heavily censored by the government. Mm -hmm. So oh oh my god, we got to read what what could possibly have the, you know what the intrigue and what could possibly be in those pages that were censored. 
makes it's uh, titillizing. It gets you wanting to buy this book. Right. So now in the Soviet system, who profits from that book? Not the author, the government. So the government has an author writes this book. Oh, it's heavily censored. Nobody has an original copy of the manuscript without the censoring. Right. So we're, we're told everything in this story is stuff we're told. Right. None of the stuff in this story could not be fabricated. Mm -hmm. So you write a book. It's a fiction book. You sell it as nonfiction. You create characters. You create a timeline. You create all this. The government is involved in the paying the author, selling the book, selling the story. So the government then hires crisis actors, basically, is what they become known now. Or they have other, you know, Soviet government intelligence office, you know, operatives act out roles. You're Yuri Yudin. You join the military later. After mm -hmm. all the all the, the hoopla is over, you, you've joined the military and are serving your country now. Well, you just went back to your regular job. That was their way of getting the story out there, you know, because it's not even in, in in the Soviet Union, it wasn't a big story. Right. It was a it was a very localized story. It wasn't you know, national news and coverage from what I can tell and what I've seen, because a lot of the stuff isn't even exist. Right. A lot of the, you know, that the newspaper and stuff like that, you know, doesn't exist. And so could it just be the Blair Witch Project? It, it truly sounds like it. I mean, it's, it sounds like the virtual, virtually the same scenario, just in a different, country and and kind of layout you know what i mean yeah. like the, but the premise is still there yeah the premise of a bunch of people go looking for something get lost and have some kind of supernatural event happen to them right with an uh, a very open-ended ending mm -hmm. you know so I don't know. I mean, could it be some Soviet plan to move these kids to some kind of special weapons project, something like that, during the time-space project, whatever? Yeah, could be. Mm -hmm. Could they have accidentally stumbled upon something they weren't supposed to? Yeah. Could they mm -hmm. have been shot and killed by soldiers? Yeah. Not reported that way. It's a communist government. They're not going to tell you that. Right. But also, could it just be a fabricated story to sell a book? You know, arts and culture at that point. You have these brave young Russian kids and their older Russian comrade who is a hero of World War II fighting the Nazis who are going for their grade three master of sport when they suddenly disappear and then are found in mysterious dead ways. Mm -hmm. Wow. I just killed the whole Giotloff Pass story here, haven't I, folks? You pretty Sorry. much have, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Like, honestly, your theory, now that you just said all that, now I'm just like, oh, well, that sums it up. And, well, I guess before we go, I mean, not that it even matters anymore. I did have this little illustration that I want to bring up here. 
and it's called the theory of nine where um along the ural mountains um there were uh, supposedly um hold on let me let me try and bring it up on the other screen too so i i can't see it very well on the on the broadcast screen i want to see if i could pull it up here quick so i could go through what i'm talking about do you know much about the theory of nine did you look into that or is this just me uh i've looked something of it up before but i don't really have a good grasp on it necessarily so i wouldn't kind of like what it says there in 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 the picture nine lives curiously the number nine occurs in three tragedies in the area ancient folklore tells of nine mancy dying yep uh, the outing led by igor jotlov in 59 and a fatal plane crash in 1991 and uh there, the ancient folklore tells of the death of nine Mansi on the Kolat Sackle, whatever. The mountain. mountain of the Dead. Yeah, yeah, the Mountain of the Dead. Yeah. Uh, and whatever was seen in the sky that scared the skiers, you know, the, whatever came crashing down. Then you had the skiers in the panic. They were ripped out of their tent. They had the footprints and yada, yada, yada. They ran down the slope. That was just a few miles from where the Mansi. Uh, event happened and it's all along all around or or within the range of that uh mount otorton and and the jotlov pass but then you have nine people that died in a plane crash in 1991 which was right on the uh opposite end of the jotlov pass so it's just kind of weird how nine indigenous people died nine skiers died nine uh members of a small plane excuse me died so I don't know. I just thought it was kind of weird and it just kind of added to the mystique of the story in the mountain. But again, like I said, <laughs> I bought your story I, or your theory, not your story. I bought it. And quite honestly, looking at that, I was, it just took the wind right out of my sails. Cause like, Oh wow, this is kind of neat. Look at, there's another theory. And I'm just, you know what? I'm not, I just, I found the answer I was looking for. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I'm always interested in the numbers thing with the, you know, the number 23, the Jim Carrey did that movie. Right. Right. And, and there's actually a condition that, that has, that has that, happen to people where mm-hmm. they start they they find that number and everything well just like 1111 supposedly mm-hmm. if you see 1111 on the clock it's a a loved one or a deceased loved one uh trying to communicate with you or, or trying to get you to remind i see that all the time even when lily was born like it was always 11 like actually she was born at well 132 it was like January tenth, twenty eleven. So it was like one one zero one one. She's binary code. She is. She is. But, but yeah. yeah. No, go ahead. But I, I was just saying, it's weird because, like, for for Leslie and I, it's always every every time, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, we're like eleven eleven, and we always say it's eleven eleven. Make a wish, you know. Mm-hmm. But oh yeah, or when you see it's one twenty three. Yeah. Yeah. Or one. Yeah, it's one twenty three or twelve thirty four because it's one two three four and it's one two yeah, three. Yeah. yeah. Um, or if it's four twenty, it's time to get high. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean. Like it's 
I think if you look for something hard enough, you start adding things and subtracting this and then carry the one and you'll get 11-11. Right. Like right. right now, or actually, of course, I go to say it and it jumped up to 12. We had 11 people viewing according to my stat. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, oh my God, it's 11. And, you know, if it was 11.51 and it would be 11.11. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. It's odd to me. If, if the whole Jatloff pass incident is true, that it isn't some cover up or, or, or hoax or, or Blair witch project, mm-hmm. there has to be a supernatural paranormal answer to it. Not a paranormal answer to it. Not in the sense of it was a ghost. It was a demon. It was a monster. It was something. Right. It was some unknown event. Yeah, it was some unknown compelling force. Right. Meaning paranormal. Mm -hmm. I think we get, like we were talking earlier, is this this a conspiracy theory? We make it a conspiracy theory. Not you and I personally, but us as people who are interested in this, we start to, well, well, what about this theory? Well, there's a group that believes this, but then they also believe it was caused by the government and this and then that, and it was actually a secret test of that. So it becomes a conspiracy, a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. In reality, if the events really happened, what happened was nine people lost their life. Yeah, twenty-one to twenty-three-year-old college students and a thirty-seven-year-old veteran of World War II. If this all did happen, died somewhere in early February of nineteen fifty-nine. Yeah. You know, it it's it, it's kind of it a lot of the stuff is just so odd that it defies explanation. Mm-hmm. The explanations presented are easily there's too many strings, there's too many holes, there's too much space for interpretation. Right. Um you know, so it it isn't I I if it did happen it has a paranormal explanation. Yeah. If it if it goes anywhere near my theories of it was the original Blair Witch or it is a way of making these kids disappear to be used for projects that were top secret, you know, that's what it was. Well, yeah. I don't think we'll ever know. Like, I don't think there's ever, I don't think there's anything we can do currently scientifically that would prove 100% that this this is what happened. This right. one thing is what happened that caused the following chain of events. Yeah. I well, think, I mean, I, I've always been interested in it. I, mm. I, I always think it's something, you know, to talk about. Now, next week, mm-hmm. we will be talking about a real American Dyatlov Pass incident. It involves <laughs> – it, it actually happens in California, uh-huh. um, happened in the 70s, happens in February. Uh, similar circumstances, different, different players in the play, but similar circumstances and some you know, mysteries that go along with it. Mm-hmm. So I figured it'd be a, it would be a good follow-up, you know – 
good follow up to the original story. I mean, and there's also other um, variants of this story that have happened other places. You know, that at least the one in America we can document. Right. We we can pull newspaper clippings. We can find police reports. It only happened in the seventies. So there are people that are still alive that were mm-hmm. part of the investigation, part of the groups and stuff like that. So I think it'll be interesting to discuss some of the theories that go on around that even, because a lot of the same theories are presented in the story we'll cover next week. Yeah. All right. So with that being said, it is almost 11 o'clock and we're way past our two and a half hour mark. Um, I'm going to go through the spiel, which I didn't do in the beginning because of our technical issues. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on our website at www.explorersgroup.com. There you can find archive shows, uh, some evidence on our personal investigations, some of the gear that we use. Feel free to shop through those links. Um, We are also on Twitter at Explorers Group. And on Facebook, facebook.com backslash Explorers Group. We're on Instagram at Explorers Group. And we are on iTunes. On iTunes, you have to search our full name, Explorers Seekers of the Truth. Um, but we're kind of all, all around out there. So check us out if you guys want to, you know, like I said, if you want to listen to any of our old stuff. Um, if you have any show ideas, like we always say, if there's anything you guys want to hear us talk about for future shows, email us at encounters at explorersgroup.com. Um, but otherwise... We will see you guys next week for the American Jotlov Pass, or I don't know what the hell it's called. We'll, you'll find out next week. <laughs> so we will talk to everybody then. Thank you so much for tuning in. We, uh, we appreciate it very much. So good night. Night. <laughs>